Some bonds last a lifetime. Some bonds inspire confidence. And some you grow to rely on. These are the bonds worth investing in. For nearly 50 years, PIMCO has reinvented fixed income to create opportunities for investors in every market environment. So no matter what happens, you can build the bonds that mean the most to you. PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn more at PIMCO.com bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but also to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. When this market falls in love with something, it just won't let go. When it hates something, the hate is so palpable, it borders on the pathological. There's very little middle ground where the market's merely ambivalent about something and companies that are hated need to change their stripes if they want to get any affection whatsoever. That dynamic explains a great deal of what happens every day, including this one. Dow dropped 135 points. S&P backslid 0.4%. NASDAQ declined 0.37%. The most beloved group in the markets right now? Payments. Yes, financial payments. Oh, it's not just love. It's worshipped. The analysts just can't resist payments, which is a big reason why the whole financial technology group has been anointed as the best way to play um, finance. What makes financial technology so attractive? It's all about the long-term shift from paper to plastic to digital. Half the world still uses paper money, so Visa and MasterCard, the two big plastic issuers, have a huge total addressable market. It's right in front of them. Unlike banks, which are still disliked, even though they reported good quarters, these credit card companies have no interest rate risk. They don't have to worry about the president saying he doesn't like the Federal Reserve's decision to keep tightening, uh, which means their shareholders don't need to worry about it either. They don't make loans, so they don't have any bad loans. They don't care about the yield curve. They have no brick-and-mortar outlets. Wow. You know what these are? They're financials without any financial stuff. And that's why Visa's up 23% for the year and MasterCard's up 36%. Then we've got the digital payment companies like PayPal and Square. Today, eBay reported a noxious quarter and stock got hammered. But PayPal, a spinoff of eBay, has been going gangbusters, with its stock up nearly 50% over the last year. This company's become a huge force in online purchases and its peer-to-peer payment business, Venmo, is on fire. Bye, bye, bye! We've interviewed CEO Dan Schulman and his ambition is to make PayPal the de facto handhold bank for 2 billion people, the 2 billion people who have a cell phone but no bank account. You know what? I believe you can do it. Hence why we own PayPal for my travel trust, which you can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. But the gains in PayPal have been puny compared to the gains in Square, the other Jack Dorsey company. House of Pleasure. Uh, you know, also, I'd like to think of this kind of really as guided, maybe, by its amazing chief financial officer, Sarah Fryer, has been on the show a couple times. Square's built a whole ecosystem around their payment processing technology to the point where they're using all that data they've collected to make intelligent small business loans to their clients. I've been a huge supporter of Square. We use some of its services at Bar San Miguel, my small plate, Mexico. 
Mexican restaurant. But uh, even I didn't imagine what this stock could rally in astounding. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? 103% since the beginning of the year. That's even better than Jack Dorsey's other company, Twitter, which is only up 81%. Do these stocks in the payment processing business deserve the recent gains? Look, the analysts are still upgrading them. Credit Suisse just today made Square a buy, took it from a hold. Also this morning, Morgan Stanley put out a piece of research about payments processing entitled, quote, great businesses with undervalued leverage position defensively upgrading industry view to attractive. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, both of these goals, to me, they seem a little late to the party. But again, that's indicative of what goes on. It's never too late to show a winning sector some love, at least not in this market. But what about the stocks that are hated? What can they do to get the market to bury the hatchet? Okay, in the last few years, Disney and Comcast, parent company of this network, have been victims of what I call their own success. Disney's an entertainment kingpin with theme parks, cable properties, movies. Comcast is the most lucrative cable operator with the, in the world with incredibly profitable growth. Yet Disney stock has been on a total treadmill. It keeps releasing hit movie after hit movie after hit movie. No one seems to care. We only focus on the movie biz when the company puts out a rare relative loser, Solo. That's because the whole narrative has been hijacked by ESPN or the fact that ESPN keeps losing subscribers. So Disney decided to do something different, decided to bid for some terrific Fox assets, including some international properties that are so big they can move the needle. They can offset whatever may be going wrong at ESPN. Then Comcast tried to snatch those assets out from under them, forcing Disney to pay more. But today, Comcast dropped it out of the bidding for that. And that gave Disney stock a boost as it's now changing its stripes in a very positive way. Hated it. Love it. Comcast makes a ton of money. But ever since its bid for Time Warner Cable got shot down by the Justice Department, it hasn't been able to get any credit for its broadband growth or its massive cash flow. People want big subscriber growth, and the nation seems maxed out. Now, though, investors are getting their heads around the possibility that Comcast may be able to get the, get to buy the majority, isn't done yet, get to buy the majority, or, or perhaps all of Sky, the biggest pan-European broadcast company with more than 22 million customers. Sky gives Comcast the growth it needs to win back the market's affection. I think these two stocks aren't up nearly enough on today's news, and they'll be rewarded over the coming months with a total revaluation that sends them a lot higher, of course, contingent upon them being able to close on these deals. Or consider IBM, which was on our show just last night. Here's a company that gets no respect because most of its revenues have come historically from its now plotting mainframe business. IBM has been busy trying to transform itself, but it didn't start getting the plaudits it deserves until yesterday when the company reported a quarter where more than half of its revenues come from the much faster strategic imperatives business. Think cloud. Now, IBM's overall business doesn't have much growth to speak of. Revenues were up only about 4% year over year. Yet I think the stock should be re-rated upward, much more than today's $4.72 gain or 3.27%, as the company's making considerable progress, including some big wins in its cloud and blockchain product lines. Finally, there's Danaher, simple DHR. Don't talk about it much. Unlike IBM, Disney, or Comcast, there hasn't been any visceral hatred of this incredibly well-run medical and environmental technology conglomerate. However, Danaher does have one division that was universally despised, their dental consumables business. With the exception of Align Technology, that's the maker of Invisalign braces, there's not much growth in anything connected with dental. The stocks in this space have been brutalized. Hey, look, just yesterday, Goldman Sachs savaged the whole industry, anticipating some ugly forecast cuts. For more than a year, I've had to listen to Dan and her conference calls and hear that all is well except its dental division. No matter how hard they tried, Dan and her couldn't get this business up to their higher growth standards. 
So what does a fantastic company do when it has an intractable asset? It does its level best to spruce things up, and then it announces a spinoff. That's exactly what Dan Hurd did this morning. The result, the stock surged $4.42, or 4.5%. I think it's got a lot more room to run now that the company's getting the dental albatross off its neck. This market is thirsty for a high-growth medical and environmental tech play with no hair on it, and it just got one. The bottom line, beauty is in the eye of the investor. And right now, investors love the financial technology space, the growth entertainment sector, the cloud, and medical tech. Their love can seem irrational at times, but to portfolio managers, loving these stocks means never having to say sorry to your investors. Mike in Illinois. Mike! Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. My stock is Intercom Communications that merged with CBS Radio in November. It yields 4.5%. The chairman has been buying stock. And in the last couple months, it has a reverse head and shoulders pattern. Jim, should I buy? I believe in David Field. I know the business is slower than it should be. Uh, I do think that it is uh, that it's real and that it can come back. And that's not just because the chief operating officers got the same name as my late mom. I like the company. Jeremy in Massachusetts. Jeremy. Thanks, Jim, for taking my call. My question is about IRM. I bought it near its 52-week low for its high dividend yield, and as it's climbing, am I still safe with that, or should I be looking somewhere else? I think you are safe. I never understand how, why the stock is so chronically under, undervalued. I think you got a winner. John in New Jersey. John! Hello, Jim. Bruha. First-time Bru- caller, long-time watcher. Glad you're with us. What's up? Okay, Wendy's. I bought it back in 2011. On Wednesday, reports Papa John merger, or they were buying, or is Wendy's a takeover candidate themselves? Do I buy, sold? You hold Wendy's because Todd Penninger is really good. And I'm saying that not just because my wife, believe it or not, loves the Baconator. Daniel, I'm sorry, Dwayne in Louisiana. Dwayne. Jim, Jim. Yo. Hey, oh, man, man. let's calls. go fishing. Let's go to the Tarpon Rodeo together. What's happening? Woo. Son, you're not kidding. You're not kidding. It's a good time of year. Hey, listen, I'm calling in to get your opinion on Shopify. Shopify was my choice for good performance stock. Bought it in April. Hey, I've made 35% on it. I can't complain. That, that's a good return. But, you know, it seems to be an erratic stock. I don't, I don't want to call it that, but it seems to be, you know, up and down and everything. Right. So, there's several companies now that that's competing for the same type of services, several companies out there. So I'll take it to a different topic here. I sold Amazon in February when it was just above 1300 Good Lord, was that a big mistake, huge mistake. I should have never did that. Um, I learned the lesson of a knee-jerk reaction at that time. My intention was to sell it, buy it back at a lower price. All right. Well. That's Hey, that didn't work out too well for me. But you know what? That's okay. Oh, right, look, look, um, Shopify got a huge gain. It is a fantastic growth stock, okay? But you know what? Etsy's been having a real good run. Shopify, Etsy, and Amazon are secular growth winners. eBay is not. Let's take a little off the table because you got such a big gain. No one ever got hurt taking a profit. But I think you can let the rest run. Investors right now, what do they love? They love fintech. They love growth entertainment. They love cloud. They love medtech. And love was never a rational thing. Oh, man, tonight, Domino's just delivered something investors aren't used to digesting. A little miss on the international same-store sales number. Stock took a hit today, but should you consider buying it? Then, as we get to the heart of earnings season, there's one thing that could keep investors guessing, the tariff impact. 
I'll tell you if it's cause for concern. And Nucor, giant steel company, just kicked off earnings season by reporting a surge in second quarter profit. But stock's dropping. I'm going to sit down with the CEO and find out what that's all about. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Some bonds last a lifetime. Some bonds inspire confidence. And some you grow to rely on. These are the bonds worth investing in. For nearly 50 years, PIMCO has reinvented fixed income to create opportunities for investors in every market environment. So no matter what happens, you can build the bonds that mean the most to you. PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn more at PIMCO.com bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. Last month, Domino's Pizza lost its longtime CEO as Pat Doyle stepped down after a remarkable eight-year run, where he totally turned around this once more open business and handed over the reins to successor Rich Allison. Now, regular viewers know that I've been a big fan of the stock of Domino's ever since 2010, when the stock was trading at 10 bucks and the comeback had just begun. The company's incredible online ordering technology has allowed it to take share domestically and expand all over the rest of the world. But this morning, Domino's reported, and some people thought the results were subpar, which is why the stock pulled back to an half percent today. While the company posted a nice 10 cent earnings beat off a dollar seventy-four basis, its sales were a bit light. Domestic sales start coming in slightly lower than expected. International stores outright disappointed. Up four, Wall Street was looking for point, looking for five point four percent. While the stock initially dropped eleven bucks on the news, by the afternoon it pared back most of its losses, already closed down around seven bucks. So, what do we make of these numbers? Let's check in with Rich Allison, the new CEO of Domino's Pizza, get a better sense of how the company's doing in his first sole appearance on the show. Mr. Allison, welcome back to Mad Money. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, Rich. I'm glad you're here. Uh, you're uh, right at the beginning. Your CFO on the conference call said uh, we were, recognized our same store sale growth internationally is slower than expected for the first half of the year. Other people would kill for these numbers. Why did he mention that? And can it be turned around, uh, given the fact that he himself was pretty tough on himself? Well, you know, Jim, we were we're pretty happy with the quarter, um, you know, in the international business and the domestic business. You know, internationally, uh, same-store sales growth were, was 4%, which is uh, within our range. Uh, what we were commenting on uh, with the first half of the year that was a little disappointing was the rate of unit growth in the international business. But as we look at the business going forward, very strong cash-on-cash cash returns outside the U.S. We're confident in our long-range 6 to 8% global unit growth. So we do not need to worry about potential, say, cannibalization, because at one point you talked about how absorbing 2016-2017 growth was, was somewhat difficult. That, to me, said, i got to ask you about cannibalization. Are there too many dominoes? No, definitely not, Jim. You know, when we take a look outside the U.S., in our top 15 markets alone, we see the opportunity for another 5,000 wow. units at least. Okay. And in the U.S. business... You know, we see an opportunity to get to 8,000 units uh, over the course of the next uh, 10 years. So, yes, some of those new store openings do uh, cannibalize some existing sales, but 
not at a level that gets us concerned that we're anywhere near saturation in the business. All right. Terrific, Rich. Now, Pat never really emphasized this, but I got to ask you uh, a bunch of uh, mentions of the loyalty program. There's been so many great technology innovation, but the loyalty program obviously played a, a role in some good sales here. Yes, loyalty has still given us a good bit of tailwind in the business, uh, Jim. Our active member base uh, continues to grow, and we're continuing to give customers more and more ways that they can access the loyalty program. So we're really happy with it now. Three years in, it's continuing to help us drive our business. All right. Also, uh, 200,000 hotspots. I mean, you just introduced that. How did you get up to that many so fast? That's amazing. Well, well, our franchisees have really embraced this, Jim. It's been a lot of fun. You know, the franchisees define the hotspots at the local level, you know, inside their own territories. In fact, you know, your local franchisee might set one up at the beach for you if you, uh, if you wanted them to. And customers have really embraced this. Uh, we've gotten a lot of excitement around it. It's still early, really rolling it out in the third quarter here, but uh, excited with the response so far. Okay, now recently we had a little outfit on from uh, San Francisco called Zoom Pizza. And they have a truck that portable, uh, you know, really, I guess it's a portable pizza ovens. Uh, is this something that, that Domino's should embrace? Or, or are you concerned that that's a pretty good competitive advantage in itself? You know, Jim, we're really focused on the business model that we have today, you know, making hot, fresh pizzas in our stores. And then what we're trying to do is actually through this fortressing process, we're bringing these delivery areas tighter and closer together. What that's doing is getting us closer to the customer. So as soon as that pizza comes out of the oven, we want it in a car with a driver and on its way to the customer. And that's that's really what we're focused on is getting that hot, fresh food there as quickly as we can. A big uh, talk about how much uh, money you spent buying back stock. You have an incredible basis, uh, 236. I know that there's a lot of reason, a lot of things that you can do with your capital, but it sounds like that buyback is important to you. Yeah, you know, we're always uh, trying to make the most efficient use uh, of the cash flow that we generate in the business. You know, first and foremost, it's investing back in the business. We've been investing aggressively in technology. Also, as we spoke about today on the call, investing in our supply chain. But with the available cash that we have, we're going to return it efficiently to our shareholders. And we had an opportunity to do quite a bit of that in the second quarter. Uh, you know, Rich, a lot of people are excited about your stock when you guys come on. So I put on Twitter that you're coming on. Any questions? Uh, Mike TR1 asked, Jim, can you ask CEO of Domino's after the recent disaster involving Papa John's, do they plan to capitalize on their misfortune? Thanks, Mike. So there it is. Mike's putting the question to you. So, Jim, there's there's some noise going on in the industry, you know, but we're really focused on our customers and our franchisees. And I think if we can continue to deliver great value, great food to our customers and can continue to support great cash on cash returns with our franchisees, I think we can continue to gain market share, and we're fairly agnostic as to where that comes from. But you have been taking market share not just from uh, mom and pops, but also from Papa John and from Pizza Hut. Is that, I mean, that's empirically true, right? Well, we, we've been taking market share uh, across the industry, Jim. Fair enough. Now, uh, Pat, when he joined called me and he said, listen, come see me. And he said to me directly, I don't like the taste of our pizza and you're going to see an ad campaign. Uh, okay, you just took over. Do you like the taste of the pizza or is it not where you want it? You know, Jim, I love our pizza. Um, you know, it, that said, we're constantly working on the food still. I mean, very happy with the product. It tests really well with consumers. 
But we do a lot of innovation uh, behind the scenes that you don't, you don't see every day. We're not constantly launching new products, but we are constantly looking at how we can make that product better for our consumers. Well, fair enough. Rich, I want to thank you so much for coming on and uh, for delivering still one more good quarter. But you're too tough on yourselves. That's what I have to say after the performance you've had. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jim. Of course. That, okay, uh, you, when you hear that someone is not happy with their performance after that kind of quarter, I got to tell you, it makes me worried that they're just too hard on themselves. That's Rich Allison, President and CEO of Domino's, and I remain a big believer. Stay with Kramer. Hey, y'all, it's your girl, Shangela, and I want to invite you to Hallelujah Happy Hour. Every week, honey, I'm shaking up a cocktail, making a playlist, and hanging with friends. Okay, let's feel. You're going to tell that you are messy. Oh, he's so hot. I'm in there. Is he listening to this? And it's going to be what? Sickening. Follow Hallelujah Happy Hour and listen for free on Spotify. drumbeat of tariff news doesn't quite wreck the landscape, but it sure makes investing harder. You just never know anymore how this stuff is going to impact individual companies. As we get into the harder earnings season, we're now hearing an almost obligatory question on really every conference call about tariff impact and what it means. It's kind of like shadow boxing. Hey, I get it. When an analyst is trying to model what's going on, say, at eBay, for example, of course that analyst wants to know how the new tariffs will impact the company that does a lot of cross-border trading. The eBay call was pretty discouraging. They're spending a fortune to promote growth, but it hasn't quite worked out the way they hoped. The stock was down badly. The weakness has nothing to do with tariffs. They had no impact. But these days, the question had to be asked. Now you got to contrast that with Alcoa, where the company's now ta- talking about taking a 12 to $14 million monthly hit from the tariffs on Canadian aluminum imports. Alcoa may be the largest aluminum producer in America, America, but 28% of the production comes from Canada. That's real money. We haven't opened a new aluminum smelter in 40 years in this country. All that's happened so far with the tariffs is that some inefficient supply has been brought back online. That's actually bad for the industry. Alcoa favored the tariffs because they thought Canada would get an exemption. Without that exemption, these new duties hit them directly. The stock was slammed. It fell $6.40 or 13.3%, one of the worst performers today. However, you know what's really going on when you start getting these kinds of questions? The portfolio managers who are listening start wondering, what the heck? Why do I want to have to worry about this kind of government intervention in my portfolio? Get me some companies where tariffs can't possibly hurt the bottom line. But here's the problem. As the president places more and more tariffs and more and more goods, trying to model earnings estimates becomes more and more complex for Wall Street researchers. And who knows where the tariff issues may lie, especially as the trade wars keep escalating. Uh, This morning, the president tweeted, I told you so. The European Union just slapped a $5 billion fine on one of our great companies, Google. They truly have taken advantage of the U.S., but not for long. Now, I have to ask you, who knows where that leads? Does that sound encouraging for auto tariffs? For cutting cutting them? No, for raising them. For example, Five Below, the discount retailer, has seen its stock soar up 62% this year, including today when it closed up at an all-time high of a dollar, of uh, a buck eleven. You might be tempted to buy a totally domestic chain that sells fun items for less than five bucks, even up here, especially when the company reported arguably the strongest quarter of any retailer. Its growth prospects—they are tremendous. 
Their last conference call, first week of June, was full of congratulations by analysts. Now I have to wonder how many analysts will ask about tariffs on Chinese goods and toys next quarter. Where's the stuff made? Can they switch manufacturers? Maybe take it to Cambodia, Vietnam. That's what's going to be asked. Well, then you say, maybe you should just own a domestic retailer of goods that aren't sourced from China. Well, good luck finding one. Or how about a domestic transport like the rails? Whoops, Union Pacific cites tariffs for some agricultural weakness. In fact, in the conference call, they flat out say, and I quote, free trade impacts are the thing we are really keeping an eye on, end quote. Hey, makes sense. They take tons of stuff from our West Coast ports to the rest of the country. The stock dropped four bucks instantly, but it did manage to rally to finish just down 84 cents. I think the stock's a buy. I'm not saying that the whole market will be upended by the trade war. I am saying that it's become top of mind. As long as we're worried about it, people won't be as willing to pay up for companies that that admit they have exposure to the tariffs, especially the autos of next week's talks with the EU that National Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow told me about yesterday delivering alpha don't go that well. And from that Google tweet, I don't know. I don't know how well they're going to go. And we certainly won't pay up for those who have their numbers cut by tariffs like Alcoa. Now, you know the Russell 2000 index has been strong of late because it's viewed as being filled with safe havens, domestic companies with no tariff exposure. Now that we're a couple of weeks into the quarter, though, it's pretty clear that you can't be too sure anymore about many more stocks than we thought. Complexity is not a good thing when you're picking stocks. It leads everyone to become more cautious. So for now, let's just put tariffs in the yellow flag camp. The more tariffs we get, though, the more Alcoa-like red flags we'll need to guard against and worry about. And yes, that may mean ultimately having to lighten up on vast swaths of the market if the tariff wars turn hot all at once around the globe. James in Virginia. James. Hey, hey JC. It's nice to talk to you. Same. Um, hey, JC, I've read a lot of your books and... Um in one of them, you made like a killing on ATI, Allegheny Technology. Yes, I did. And uh, now, you know, with the aircraft industry doing quite well and uh, with all these tariffs that are going on and, and energy is being, uh, you know, it's up and down so much. Um, where do you think ATI would be going with the lightweight titanium that it's really good with now? Well, I'll tell you, this is a great question. I'll tell you why it's a great question, because I literally do not know. I, after what happened with Alcoa, I don't know how they source what they need. We're going to have to they're gonna report next week. We're going to have to listen to that quarter. This is exactly, James brings up exactly what I'm worried about. I don't know the answers to ATI. I will do homework. But things are so much more difficult now in the steel industry to figure out. Let's go to Sean in Illinois. Sean. Hey, Jim. Booyah. 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 My question is about Unit Corporation. That ticker is UNT. Uh, I bought that stock about a year ago, and I'm up nearly 50%. Now, a couple weeks ago, you had a segment on oil and gas where you shared some pretty bullish views. Yes. Especially for those companies that continue to invest in exploration. Yes. Uh, it was great for me to hear because I think it was back in April or so that Unit sold a $300 million stake in its midstream business, and they say they'll be using that to boost spend in exploration and production. Having said that, it does seem like analysts are on the fence with this one. Maybe they're concerned well, about Well, call Trump me a bull. I like the, the stock and I like the sector, and I think you are barking up the right tree. It always surprises me that people are going to say, this one's up 20%, it's too late. I think there's more upside. All right, tariffs are top of mind, and that makes investing a harder landscape. 
Let's put companies with exposure in the yellow flag camp for now. Much more mad money ahead. New core reported earnings on the first day of the auto tariff searing at the uh, Commerce Department, just as the EU begins its uh, possible retaliations, if only just to say that they're going to, in foreign steel. Talk about an interesting data report. I'm talking with the CEO to find out what's ahead. Then, good news if the dog ate your homework. I did it for you, and it could make you some money. And all your calls, rapid fire, tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Oh, my God, the hedge fund managers. They came out really, I mean. Something they didn't believe. They hate they Tesla. They did the work. Thank I've done you. the work. They hate Tesla. It's got to be true really I did the work. Sorry. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. I know President Trump's trade policy has been very controversial, but there's one thing everyone agrees on. When you slap a 25% tariff on imported steel, that's good news for the steel industry. So why the heck can't the stock of Nucor, the best-run steel maker on the face of the earth, seem to get any momentum? Seriously, this is kind of driving me nuts. Just this morning, Nucor reported a fabulous blowout quarter. The company delivered an eight-cent earnings beat off a $2.05 basis of 130% year-over-year. Sales came in higher than expected, up nearly 25%. Management says the next quarter will be even better. Hey, yeah, what happens? The stock goes down. Setting 1.4%. Granted, Nucor had already pre-announced strong numbers last month, but here's the thing. Ever since President Trump's announced his steel tariffs in the beginning of March, this stock has actually fallen slightly. We own Nucor for my charitable trust, which you can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. We've got a 14% gain in it, mostly because we've been very good about trading around it. But I got to tell you, I expected the stock to roar thanks to these tariffs. It hasn't happened yet. So what's the deal? Nucor's putting up amazing numbers. It just seems like Wall Street doesn't want to give them any credit, as though good earnings don't count if they're getting a boost from government intervention. I think it's crazy. Don't take it from me. Let's dig deep with John Ferrioli. He's the chairman, president, and CEO of Nucor. Find out more about the quarter and what will take to get the stock moving. Mr. Ferrioli, welcome back to Mad Money. Hi, Jim. How are you? All right, John, I was on the Alcoa quarter and uh, the conference call, and they got hurt by tariffs. And I'm thinking, is there any way that Nucor is being hurt by tariffs, or is it all good for the company? It's very good for the company. All you need to do is to look at our earnings for the second quarter. It was a record second quarter for the company, and it was our second best quarter in the company's history. So it was a very good quarter for us. Do you think that people believe it's not sustainable, that it's really because your company's really only benefiting from the, from the tariff, and if the tariff went away, then the, the uh, stock would go down? Well, Jim, let, let's take a look at the facts. You know, certainly we get a tailwind from the tariffs, but the tariffs really only have gone into effect, full effect, in June. So we're just beginning to see the, uh, the impact of that. And if you look at the overall impact of the uh, imports, there's been a very little change in the imports from the first quarter of last year through the first quarter and first half of this year. In the first half of 19, uh, excuse me, 2017, imports were about 15 million tons. In the first half of this year, they've only dropped about 1 million tons to 14 million tons, a very small change. And that difference in the supply chain from imports were more than made up by domestic companies increasing their utilization. All right. So uh, you did talk about in the conference call that you now see the market is being based on supply and demand. It literally is just it it just (laughs) all these tariffs did was, in your opinion, is level the playing field. Correct. 
Absolutely. And Jim, you've heard me say on this show how many times that if we had, if Nucor had a level playing field on which we could compete, we would be very successful. And we are. And you've heard me also say that we've spent lots of money during the downturn preparing for the inevitable upturn in the steel market. Well, it's here. We are capitalizing on it. There should be no surprise that we had a very strong quarter. Now, uh, it's, it seems a, a kind of an oddity to me. Just today, uh, the EU put on a 25% tariff uh, for trade diversion. Nobody even squawks that they put on a tariff. Everybody squawks when we do it. Do you see an imbalance between those two? Oh, absolutely. But I have to say that it's really not surprising that other countries are beginning to recognize the threat that the massive global steel overcapacity presents to the sustainability of their critical industries like steel. So this wasn't a surprise to me at all. Okay, now let's talk about actual business. One of the things that I think was really, uh, you pointed out, this tubular business that you got into. I mean, with people trying so hard to get nat gas and oil out of the Permian, this is a home run, isn't it? Oh, this was more than a home run, Jim. This, this frankly, was a grand slam. Not only did it give great performance as a standalone uh, business for us, but the synergies that it brought between our sheet group and the tubular group were phenomenal. Think about it this way. In 2017, the tubular division consumed 900,000 tons of our product. That was 900,000 tons we did not have to sell into the open market, which gave us a great, a, a great advantage in selling the rest of our spot tons. It's been a very good acquisition. All right, now, uh, I used to cover uh, as a, uh, well, I used to cover Bethlehem Steel. And they always told me that you can't really get more than 95% steel capacity utilization. Are you at the max right now at 95? Hey, Jim, one of the best things that you could do for me on the show is to tell my team that they can't get better than 95% utilization. Because when you tell a new core team that they can't do something, I promise you, they will find a way to do it. Now, there is a limit to the amount of utilization you can get, but I think we can squeeze a few more percent out. It's tough, but I think our team can do it. But that doesn't mean that our profits aren't going to continue to grow. Look at the mix that we're producing. We will continue to move up the value chain. We will continue to switch our mix to higher margin products. That's the reason we're investing so much money in galvanizing lines. Right now, we're in the process of building three galvanizing lines, which produce a higher margin. So although our utilization is beginning to peak, the margins that we're able to achieve and therefore our profitability will continue to grow. And you're still putting more money uh, in building plants because of this. So it's kind of an example of what happens if you level the playing field. Good companies build more plants to take advantage of it. Absolutely. Right now, you know, you've heard me mention that we've invested $8 billion during the downturn. And right now we're investing another $1.5 billion in eight very, strate uh, very strategic projects that will come online 2019 and some of them further on in 2020. We are very excited about these projects. They're strategic to Nucor and they're creating good, high paying American jobs for American workers. Last question. Is anyone squawking at any price increase that you have put through saying it's unfair? Our customers are appreciative of us making sure that they get the steel that they need to keep their customers happy. And we've been able to do that. We have found, you know, we have downstream business ourselves, many of them. 
and we have found in our downstream businesses that the price increases are recognized by the final customer as necessary, and they've been accepted. All right, terrific. I'm sticking by my recommendation. I think you have a very inexpensive stock and are going to do really quite well this year. That's John Ferriol, Chairman, President, and CEO of Nucor, which I think is a buy. May have money's back yet. It is time! It's time for the Lightning Round. Remember, what is that? That's about Rob Park Bulls. One of those is just with the same video. We're going to play the sound. And then the Lightning Round is over. Are you ready, Skate? That is over the Lightning Round. I'm going to start with Diane in Texas. Diane. Hi, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. I want you to- <laughs> Thank you. I want you to know my husband and I are huge fans of Thanks. And um, because he steered us in the right direction with Gilead Sciences in 2013-2014, today's question brings us back to biotech with Biogen. It seems that on the cusp of a breakthrough for Alzheimer's, and I wanted to get your take um, on what type of time frame do you see Uh, Biogen? This is a very hard one because I think that they were very promotional when they put out their news. They had failed to meet the endpoints earlier. Now they said they made the endpoints. That said, if it's true, the stock doubles. If it's not true, the stock gives up 40 points. That's the risk-reward. you got to make a judgment. It's above my pay grade. Let's go to Richard in Pennsylvania, please. Richard! Richard! I'm Kramer, longtime fan, young investor, 22 years old, going for long-term investing. My ticker is Regions Financial. Well, earnings I, like, I like Regions Financial. I like those medium, you know, not gigantic banks. I think you've got a good one. I need to go to Diane in New Mexico. Diane! Thank you for speaking with me. My inquiries regarding Lockheed Martin LMT. It has a $2 share quarterly dividend and has lost $43 per share from its 52-week high of 363. Do you believe it possible to recover back? Yes, to I do. I think Lockheed high? Martin is very good for my travel trust, which you can follow if you join the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. We own Raytheon, which I think has better growth than Lockheed, but Lockheed is fine. Thank you, Don in Massachusetts, Don. Hi, Jim. How you doing? I am well. How about you, Don? Doing great, thanks. Uh, my stock is U.S. Bancorp, symbol USB. One of my favorite banks. I think you'll do quite well in it over time, not instantly. Lenny in New York. Lenny. Hey, Jim. How you doing, buddy? We are good. How about you? Good. Lenny from Oceanside. Your opinion on Switch Incorporated. I got to do more work on it. It's just too cheap. It looks just something's wrong with that valuation. I got to find out why, and I will come back. How about Harley in Texas? Harley. Yes. You're up. How are you doing? Oh, great. How about you? Good. Um, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, in regards to Target, do you think it's a Good investment right now. I and like so- Target. Brian Cornell is doing a fabulous bye, bye, bye. job, and I'll throw in a 3% yield. Target is a winner. Moniel in North Carolina. Moniel. How are you, Jim? Big booyah. Booyah right back. I love the support and your help for our country. My stock today is BLK, BlackRock. Oh, BlackRock. You're getting a rare opportunity to buy that stock when it's down. So I never down the darn thing. Take advantage of it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the... Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. You know me. 
I am a huge believer in homework, even if that means that we sometimes have to do some summer reading. Every time I get a call about a stock I don't recognize or one that I haven't followed very closely, I say, hey, nobody's perfect. I always do the research and I come back to you with a more considered opinion rather than cuffing it. After all, this is the most interactive show on television. I mean, you ever thought about that? It kind of is. Sometimes I think of myself as a, as a bit of a stock DJ who occasionally takes requests. So with that in mind, let's do some housekeeping. On June 11th, I got a call from Levon in Florida who wanted to know about Sensionics Holdings. And the symbol there is S-E-N-S. I said I'd need to do some digging. Sensionics is a very small medical technology company, makes continuous glucose monitoring systems for people with diabetes. Rather than pricking your finger constantly to check your blood sugar levels, these guys implant a small sensor under your skin, which then connects to an external transmitter that you can put on your skin, which in turn sends your data to a sends your data to a mobile app that gives you real-time readings. So it's kind of in to out data. Now, their system just got FDA approval late last month, and it's likely going to launch here in the U.S. sometime this year. Here's the thing, though. The stock ran up dramatically into that approval news on June 21st, but since then it's given back a huge portion of its gains. Why? After the stock surged to above $5, Sensionics did a big secondary offering, which priced down at $4.05. That was brutal. While the stock tried to mount a rally earlier this month, it couldn't get traction. It's now come down to $3.87. Basically, it's almost round trip to where it was trading when Levon asked about it in the first place at $3.82. So where do I come down on this story? I got good news and I got some bad news. First, though, you need to understand that Sensionics is incredibly speculative. It's a single-digit stock with a $532 million market cap, below most of the stocks we talk about on the show, and a brand-new product that's about to hit the shelves. The good news? The stock has already gotten clobbered. You're not chasing it if you buy it here. And if the company's new glucose monitoring system is successful, the company will make a fortune. But then we got some bad news. The continuous glucose monitoring space, in other words, this competition, has gotten very crowded of late. And I'm not sure if these guys have what it takes to compete. And that's not necessarily because they're lightweights. It's just they're up against heavyweights. I mean, you've got pure plays like Insulate, Dexcom, the latter being a longtime friend of the show, with a stock that's been roaring of late because it's got a superior technology platform. And then there are larger medical device giants who are in this thing trying to get in the action There's, and succeeding. Abbott Labs and to a lesser extent Medtronic. Makes sense. Unfortunately, managing diabetes is a growth industry. And I got to tell you, having seen what Dexcom does, I'm hesitant to endorse Sensionics. Why would you want to get your implantable blood sugar monitor when these other companies make systems that you can just stick on your skin and no medical procedure required? Here's how I see it. You want to play a continuous glucose monitor story, you got to stick with Dexcom. Or you can pick up some Abbott Labs, which we own from my travel trust. You can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. They reported a fantastic quarter just yesterday. But look, if you've got some insight into this uh, that I don't, if you have a lot of diabetic friends or know a lot of doctors and they say this thing's going to be huge, you've got my blessing to speculate on Sensionics. Without that extra homework, though, I can't get this one my blessing because I like the other companies in the space so much. All right, now next up, June 12th. Mary in Connecticut called about Atricure, and that's A-T-R-C. I said I had to get back to her. Now, this is another small medical device company, although in Atricure's case, they specialize in dealing with heart conditions. Among other things, they make the first and only device that's been approved for the treatment of long-standing, persistent forms of atrial fibrillation. That's a type of irregular heart rhythm that often leads to strokes or even heart failure. And they can stick the system into, your, into you with a catheter rather than cracking open your chest for open heart surgery. 
The company's also got a cryosurgery product that uh, line that it does something similar both for heart surgery and for pain management. Basically, they can go in and temporarily damage your nerves, which reduces the pain signals that go to your brain. But really, the vast bulk of the business here is heart-related. Now, this stock started running right after Mary called in to ask about it, climbing from $24 to $29. And that was after jumping from 15 at its February lows. And Mary wasn't just asking about this randomly. She's a nurse, and she told us she sees she's seeing more and more of these devices in the operating room. That may sound anecdotal, but it's exactly the kind of anecdote you want to hear about from a medical device company. So here's your opportunity. Every year, we perform 300,000 open-heart surgeries in this country, and 90,000 of those are, in pa- are with patients with atrial fibrillation. Yet, according to Atricure, only 20,000 of those patients get ablation treatment, which is the technical term for what their lead product does. Consider me totally intrigued by this. Atricure has run up dramatically, but on an enterprise value to sales basis, it's one of the cheapest names in the space. You do have my permission to put on a small position here for speculation only. And ideally, you can buy more if the stock comes down as part of a broader sell-off in healthcare. I really like this one, Mary, in Connecticut. And I got to tell you, highest compliment, you got horse sense. Finally, on June 20th, Jeff in Michigan asked about Live Oak Bank shares, symbol LOB, L-O-B, the parent of Live Oak Bank. But this isn't any old bank. Live Oak is an up-and-coming, online-based, small business lender that's all about using technology to develop better underwriting standards. And man, this thing's growing like a weed, with revenue up substantially in its latest quarter, and the earnings per share increasing by 63%. You rarely see this level of growth from a small bank. The lack of fiscal infrastructure has been huge for their profitability. Now, ordinarily, we value a bank stock based on its tangible book value, TBV, what it would be worth if they closed up shop and liquidated the whole business. That's what I do for a lot of the large banks. But Live Oak is very expensive on that basis, trading at 2.87 times book. I mean, that's a massive premium to say J.P. Morgan, far from the cheapest bank in itself, which sells for less than two times its tangible book value. Forget City, which sells it at its book value. Jeez. Now, that's not the right metric when you're judging Live Oak. Oak is a growth company, and so it should be judged based on its price earnings multiple, like any other profitable growth play. And guess what? On an earnings per share basis, it's absurdly cheap, selling for less than 19 times next year's numbers. Given that the company's growing its sales at a 30% clip, I mean, that looks like a bargain to me. Only source of hesitation? Live Oak reports in exactly one week from today, and I don't have a good read on the quarter. So I suggest putting on half your position now and then awaiting. If the stock sells off after earnings, you can look at the numbers and decide whether to increase your position. But, yeah, I think Live Oak Bank shares is a buy. And I'm really glad Jeff brought this one to our attention. And boy, oh boy, do we have smart viewers. Stick with Kramer. After the close, two of our faves, Microsoft and Skyworks Solutions, Leah Griffin there, looks like they reported pretty good quarters, got to do more work. Skechers, another disappointment. That one may not be right. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. Some bonds last a lifetime. Some bonds inspire confidence. And some you grow to rely on. These are the bonds worth investing in. For nearly 50 years, PIMCO has reinvented fixed income to create opportunities for investors in every market environment. So no matter what happens, you can build the bonds that mean the most to you. PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn more at PIMCO.com bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing.